Weighing Machine was created to help you, the financial advisor or investor, reach your long-term financial goals. Each episode, your hosts, Rusty Vanneman and I, Robin Murray, cut through the market glamour to find the time-tested principles that help investors succeed. The Weighing Machine is inspired by the classic investing saying attributed to Benjamin Graham. The stock market is a voting machine in the short term and a weighing machine over the long run. In other words, emotion and expectations drive short-term market movement, but fundamentals and valuations determine returns over time. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. Enjoy, and as always, let us know what you think. On the podcast today, sustainable investing or ESG, when does it make sense for investors? We'll discuss the ins and outs of sustainable investing in fixed income. Let's call it sustainable credit. That's with our guest, Vink Reddy, Chief Investment Officer of Sustainable Credit at Osterweiss Capital Management. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. I'm Rusty Vanneman. And I'm Robin Murray. Okay, let's start with a look at the markets. What do you think are the top things to watch as we head into 2023? It is that time of year, isn't it? So it's for forecasts and outlooks. And it's quite frankly, it's been fascinating to see all of the outlooks so far for 2023. Everything from losses, potential losses to strongly positive returns. And I have to agree, it's going to be somewhere in between. How about that? But honestly, I do think the environment probably will still remain challenging, at least for the TV benchmarks, such as the S&P and the Dow Jones, the NASDAQ. But I am pretty optimistic on globally diversified multi-asset portfolios. I am also optimistic, or at least negative, on fixed income. And I'm also still very intrigued by the long-term prospects of ESG investing. So given these last two topics, I'm excited about today's guest. All right. Well, let's bring him in. Frank Gritty is the Chief Investment Officer of Sustainable Credit at Osterweiss Capital Management in San Francisco. Frank, welcome to The Weighing Machine. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to be here. Yeah. This should be a really fun interview. And of course, the fun begins with the first question, and that is the walk-up song. The one that you had to study hardest for, probably. Unless you already have one. You may already have one. <laughs> <laughs> Something I've been thinking about my entire life. If you had asked me this three years ago, I might have had a different answer. But given the markets, given the last three years, given my childhood and given what's coming, I think I have to today go with REM's It's the End of the World as We Know It and I Feel Fine. Uh, <laughs> that is a good one. You know, I, have one. we had any REM yet? I don't, I don't think, think we've so. had. Yeah. Great, first. great addition to the playlist. Very nice. All right. Well, Vink, you have been at Osterweiss since last May. Tell us more about your background and what you do in your current position. Sure. So I came to Osterweiss. Prior to that, I had, was the founder of a fixed income, a credit firm called Zio Capital Advisors. And I've actually known Carl Kaufman, the co-CEO of Osterweiss for over a decade. And we realized not too long ago that we were, the whole was greater than the sum of the parts. I think that's how we say it, right? Mm -hmm. And that our teams were very synergistic together. So our team joined the Osterweiss family in May of last year. My background is in credit investing as well as in absolute return investing. And so we, you know, we bring them both together in our approach to credit and our approach to short duration credit in the sustainable credit strategies at Osterweiss. All right. Well, on your website, it says Osterweiss's capital management philosophy is that clients' financial goals are best achieved by avoiding major losses in falling markets and compounding reasonable gains in rising markets. So sounds good. Tell us more about that philosophy and what sets Osterweiss apart. Sure. So at the end of the day, so Osterweiss was founded nearly 40 years ago, specifically to serve the needs of you know high net worth individuals and institutions. 
Because of that, we've always taken a conservative approach to investment management. And I say we because though, you know, I joined Osterweiss in May, philosophically, you know, my prior life and Osterweiss were very compatible. And that's why, you know, we decided that it made sense to come here. It all hinges on this perspective of risk management, right? You can have risk managed strategies or you can have unmanaged risk strategies. And unmanaged risk strategies are, you know, for example, index investing and risk managed strategies are strategies where you're not going to be the highest performing market in a highest performing portfolio in a bull market or the lowest performing portfolio in a bear market. You're going to be much more consistent and you're going to focus on consistency and delivering, you know, what you've told your clients are going to deliver in, in a really consistent way. And that's really at the end of the day, that's the that's the underlying philosophy of the risk management approach that we take here at Osterweiss. Yeah, sounds great. So thanks. So you focus on the term sustainable credit. What does that mean exactly? Oh, goodness. So that's a good question, because if you've met one sustainable approach to investing, you've met exactly one sustainable approach to investing. There's many approaches. There are people doing it. So, you know, I will tell you what it means to us. I appreciate the way you phrase that question. For us, <laughs> for us, look, I'm going to phrase it this way, right? Because the term ESG is very commonly used in this subset of the market. ESG, in, in our view, is not a strategy. It's not a style of investing. It is simply an acronym for three letters that represent three categories of risk. And for us, we are deeply fundamental investors. And if we're going to aim to manage risk in a portfolio, we're going to consider it would make sense to consider the most holistic set of risks you could possibly consider. And just because a risk is or isn't under the E category or the S category or the G category or something else like leverage or cash flows, just because the risk falls in one category or another doesn't make it any less or more relevant to a company's underlying fundamentals if it is material to that company. So for us, sustainable credit, put simply, is investing in companies that are focused primarily on the long-term sustainability of their underlying business. Because if current management teams are leaving problems for future management teams to clean up, that's a very short-term focus. And what we want is to invest in companies that are taking a longer-term approach to managing their business and managing the risks that could at some point undermine their business's creditworthiness. Because at the end of the day, that's our job. So the Osterweiss approach to sustainable credit differs from other firms because you're taking a more of a long-term orientation and it's more about risk management. That's exactly correct. And I will add one more thing to that, which is that it's also about progress. And when I say progress, it's, it's really interesting, right? Our goal is to align performance and progress. But in order to align performance and progress, you need a situation in which the investments you're making, that their underlying fundamentals are truly impacted by the management team's decision to make more progress and to actually improve their standing along these categories of risk that they have. And so that's one thing that's really important to us and I can get into, but it's really about how we think about the way our portfolio and way our interactions with our companies benefit our shareholders and our investors. So sustainable credit, I mean, how does that really differ from just, you know, when people, I guess, refer to terms like green bonds or, I mean, how does that really differ? Oh, wow. So that is exactly kind of in a way what I was hinting at when I just spoke. So it's almost like we planned this question. Okay. So here's my issue with green bonds. And I'm going to take a stand here, which some people may not necessarily appreciate, but here it is. So most green bonds, first and foremost, are issued by investment grade companies. And the structure of a green bond, is, as a lot of listeners might know, and as, as I'm, I'm sure you're aware, is if a company meets a certain target, and it depends on what, it might be a sustainability-linked bond instead of a green bond, it might not just be an environmental target, but if they meet whatever that ESG target is that is set in their documentation, 
their interest will get reduced by some amount. Usually it's a quarter of a percent, sometimes half a percent, but it's, it's, it's a relatively small amount, but it's not nothing. So nominally, a company would be incentivized to meet that target and reduce their interest, right? That's the theory behind the structure. Or the converse is if they miss a target, their interest goes up. That Those are the types of structures we typically see. The problem with that is twofold. Number one, when most of the companies that are issuing these bonds are investment grade, and they're only issuing them at the bond level, which is not their whole capital structure, just some small part of it, it's really cheap to fail, right? Other than maybe some reputational hit, a management team that misses a target, pays a little more interest, it's not really existential to the company, it doesn't really put the company at risk, it's just more money and that's a bummer. But worse than that is for the majority of investors in those bonds, which tend to be a lot of funds, so I'm not saying that they're intentionally doing this, but their incentive is to choose companies that are going to miss their targets because they'll get a higher total return, right? So even if someone doesn't want to do that, they don't want to choose companies that are going to purposely miss these targets, they're going to get a higher total return. And so the incentives are not aligned properly. The way you align those incentives, which I think we're decades away from getting there, would be to have those targets in the bond issue be events of default or be covenants. But the various folks that are controlling this market that are issuing the bonds, the issuers, the capital markets desk, the, the, the fund managers, are not necessarily incentivized to, to structure it in a way that they would lose money the way they would if the bond defaulted for some other reason. The reason I bring that up is, you know, where we tend to traffic more in high yield rated bonds. And in the case of high yield rated bonds, we don't focus on bond level structures like you would have in green bonds where the, the terms having to do with the ESG performance falls at the bond level. We focus on the issuer level, the whole company. And what's really interesting about that is when you're in the high yield space, if a company is not behaving in a way that's long-term sustainable to their business, if they're actually behaving in a way that's irresponsible or creating future liabilities, right? If they're dumping sludge in a river and creating this risk of a future billion dollar liability that we never know when it's going to come down the pipe, that's actually existential to their business. And so performing in a way that's that's responsible, that's sustainable for your business, that actually you know respects the risks that fall under the ESG categories is aligned with being a better credit. And so performance and progress end up getting aligned in that space. And that that at, at the end of the day is where you know we feel very comfortable that we're skirting this debate of performance versus progress because we have the ability to align them together. Makes sense. So how big is the ESG market currently and how big do you think it will get? So, you know, there's two ways to answer this question. You can think of it in terms of the appetite of investors, or you can think of it in terms of the how many appropriate investments are. So, I mean, the headlines every day seem to reduce the number of appropriate investments because, you know, as some regulator somewhere along the way or some someone out there says, oh, well, this isn't really sustainable because someone's making that determination, whoever that is, that the, the they, the famous they, right? Funds have actually, fund managers, large fund complexes have had to sort of declassify things as ESG for what it's worth or sustainable. And so the number of investable products is actually, you know, it's unclear and it's, it's possibly getting smaller from mission-driven standpoint. The appetite for investors, it's a little tricky, right? So our view with respect to treating ESG factors as risks would make the argument that, and we we feel very strongly about this argument, that sustainable investing is fundamental investing and fundamental investing is sustainable investing. And so in my view, the size of the market is, is, is similar to the size of a market if you were to ask me, 
you know, how big is the market for security selected, you know, risk managed fundamental portfolios, right? Now, to be fair, that market is not the entire market because there's a very large percentage of the, the investor universe that's focused on, you know, indices and that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, there's always going to be a difference between companies behaving responsibly with respect to their credit quality and companies that are not. That, to me, is a fundamental thing. So I would make that case. That the more investors focus on ESG as risks, the larger that market becomes, not because the market's getting bigger, because people realize that this is as appropriate for traditional, this approach is as appropriate for traditional portfolios as it is for mission-driven ones. So for investors who are investing in this space, how are they sizing their positions generally? It's a good question. So I can't speak for everyone in the space. But our observation, I'll start by saying our observation for investors that use us, right? The way we, our portfolios use is in core fixed income portfolios. So we've, we've seen that, you know, be, we're not someone's entire core fixed income portfolio, right? You want people to be diversified across different risk types, but we've seen that be as high as 10% of a portfolio, even among traditional investors. And it's important to note that at least for us and our strategy, you know, it's, I think the majority of investors in it are actually not just mission-driven investors. They are traditional investors because of this performance progress alignment. I think in general, you know, we've seen obviously, uh, you know, mission-driven investors will have hundred percent of their portfolio in various sustainable strategies. I wouldn't say they're all sustainable sort of strategies focused on risk. Some of them are actually trying to, they're focused on more impact or thematic sort of approaches. But just in general, you know, if you're asking me sort of how people should be sizing their portfolio, I think if you take an approach that if someone wants a risk managed portfolio in any given asset class, then you'd want your managers to consider as holistic a picture of risk as possible. And so I could see an ESG integrated portfolio being all of a particular subset of an allocation within the asset class if, a, if you can find the manager that's taking that approach. This is really fascinating. I totally get what you're saying. Talking about ESG again, I'm kind of making this a, a subset or still a whole different category. And, and of course, you're making the argument it's all investing should be considering these factors. But when people are thinking about still ESG, anything that's got the ESG label, whether it's sustainable label or ESG, it's had good growth rates in the industry. But I think a lot of people have expected even more growth. So what are your projections for long-term growth of sustainable investing but I guess more importantly, what do you think the catalyst will be for it? What do you think is going to make make things really turn? Because this seems like it could still be really big, but what's, what's going to make it click? It's a really good question. I'm going to start by addressing your thought. It's a really interesting comment you made that people were expecting even more growth. I think what impedes that growth in a lot of ways, and this is sort of a give to get kind of answer to some extent, is short-term investment thinking. You know, a lot of people remember it in 2020, right? A lot of ESG managers sort of, you know, cheered that they outperformed their traditional peers because they weren't invested in fossil fuels. A lot of them weren't. But in 2022, a lot of those same managers are kind of nowhere to be found because they weren't invested in fossil fuels, right? So this short-term mindset of thinking about ESG as ESG investing or ESG, an ESG focus, as being something where, hey, we still need, you know, those portfolios are expected to outperform in a three-month, six-month, 12-month timeframe against traditional benchmarks, I think gets in the way because it creates this conflict between performance and progress, and it creates the conflict even more broadly between performance and risk, right? I go back to the very first thing I said about our firm and the way we think about risk-managed portfolios with or without a sustainable lens, 
at the end of the day, if you're a risk managed portfolio, right, there's a lot of undisciplined ways to make money. And just because a risk doesn't manifest itself doesn't mean it doesn't exist. So, you know, from my perspective, ESG risks are longer term risks. We don't know when they're going to manifest themselves. We don't know when they're going to impact fundamentals. And quite frankly, sometimes they won't, even though they are material risks. And so a focus on the short term, I think, has been one of the impediments because it's exacerbated this performance versus progress kind of trade-off. And it's also exacerbated an obsession with, with scores, with determining, saying this company is good or bad, and we invest because they are good or bad. And so the analogy I like to use is, is of a classroom, right? If I'm a teacher and I want a classroom to make progress, I don't do it by only paying attention to the A students, right? I'm looking for C students that want to be B students. I'm looking for B students that want to be you know, A students. I'm looking for D students that want to be C students. I'm, I'm basically looking for the intentionality and the desire to make progress. So that's one of the things we evaluate management teams on a lot. I'm looking for that intentionality to make the progress, not just determining, hey, you're good and you're bad, so I'm going to only focus on you. And so, you know, coming back to your question of catalysts of growth, I think we need a bit of a reckoning. I don't know when it's going to come. I don't see it coming, but a reckoning that exposes what I'm going to call the performative side of this space, right? So the side where, where folks are checking boxes for the purpose of attracting and retaining capital, right? I mean, that is the business of investment managers is attracting and retaining capital. We do it by offering a product, by managing money, but our business is actually, you know, what generates the revenue. And so, you know, there's a very performative side of this space that I'm going to say somewhat cynically, just grabbing at assets because it's popular. And I think we need a reckoning where that exposes that performative side and really allows us to focus in on the sincere, the actual deployment of capital, both for financial performance as well as for progress. And once we get there and we can kind of wrap our heads around that, you know, security selection does matter. I mean, for quite a while, right, people would argue security selection hasn't mattered in a long-term bull market, but we're coming to the end of that. So, you know, security selection matters when people think it matters and risk is not a short-term concept, it's a long-term concept. So once we get to a place where that's the discussion around ESG and risks and sustainability, then I think the market grows quite substantially. Wouldn't it almost be something like, let's just, I'm just hypothetically, it could be something as like the S&P 500, all of a sudden Standard & Poor's, which is obviously a committee. What if they make the decision to put some sustainable factors into their criteria to be in the S&P 500? Gosh, wouldn't that be a game changer? It would be. I think what I would caution there is that, are they doing it based on a good versus bad sort of determination? Or are they doing it based on a progress determination? Because at the end of the day, it takes work to get to know these companies and understand what they're about and what they're doing. And it can't really easily be distilled into a number. And then if you have multiple people coming up with numbers, you know, we're fundamental credit managers. I don't buy a bond because one investment shop says it was a buy, wrote a report saying it was a buy, and another one might say it was a sell. I am informed by their work, but I do the work myself. And I think at the end of the day, what we're asking people to do is hire us because we do the work ourselves. And if that means that we don't kind of, you know, some companies in our portfolio might not check a particular box because it's not, you know, a score of a 90 or higher based on someone's determination, that's okay. Because what we do have high degrees of confidence in is that management team is looking to make progress. They're aware of the risks. They have strategies to manage the risks. They're executing on those strategies and they're you know, measuring and reporting and holding themselves accountable. And that's what we're looking for. 
That's a great point. So as Rusty mentioned earlier in the podcast, it is that time of year for Outlooks for 2023. And we want to hear your outlook and how it's being articulated in investment portfolios. So first, what's your view on overall interest rates and fixed income? Okay, so overall interest rate. So I'm going to caveat all of this by saying that because we manage a portfolio, the flagship of our sustainable credit group is a short duration credit portfolio. It's intended to deliver on consistent expectations regardless of what happens in the marketplace. We don't express views in the portfolio as much because we're really trying to deliver a portfolio that will that will perform as expected regardless, right? That doesn't have to care. That doesn't mean it's not immune to, you know, mark to markets, but at the end of the day, if I look at two points in time, I want to be able to have a high degree of confidence that when I get to point B, we've preserved capital and in between we've generated the income that folks are looking for. So, so I caveat all of this with that. As far as, you know, where we think interest rates will go, look, I marvel at the fact that I feel like we're dealing with markets that I've never seen markets that have been so good at being surprised by what they've already been told is going to happen. And I do think part of that is because a lot of market participants are so busy trying to outsmart the market, they've forgotten to just stop and listen. And so I think it's a pretty clear outcome that, you know, at least in the short term, that the Fed is going to continue to raise rates for a little bit. I think it's pretty clear that they're going to pause at some point and try to see if they can, the slowly declining rate of inflation will kind of come in under their rate level and allow them to kind of let things run a little bit you know, longer. My biggest concern, and this goes back to my point of trying to build a portfolio that's going to be okay regardless of what happens. My biggest concern is I spend a lot of time trying to think of scenarios that the market's not worried about, right? Markets tend to be most volatile in the direction where expectations are missed, not when expectations are met. And I think it's I think a you know a, a, some level of a recession with rates going up in the short term is generally a well expected outcome. So what I've been trying to figure out is what are people not expecting, and I do think that where a lot of market participants and analysts and economists are looking at this as an economic cycle, right? When is this cycle going to turn? When are rates going to come back up, or when are we going to go into a recession and rates come back down? When is the yield curve going to normalize and not be downward sloping anymore? I actually think that there is a chance that what we're seeing here is not an economic cycle on the order of months and years, but a paradigm shift on the order of years and decades, right? We've had 40 years of tailwinds to markets, the risk markets that have basically gone up and to the right. And, you know, we can go back in time and look at sort of what drove that in the late 70s and early 80s. It was the implementation of 401ks. It was the creation of Vanguard for investable indices. It was the, you know, the creation of Morningstar for the democratization of, of short-term benchmarking. And then around all of that was the emergence of the baby boomers in the, the working class. And I think that what you know, Chair Powell has mentioned this a couple of times in the last couple of meetings, and, and we actually wrote a, a letter that can be found on our website that, that dove into this. But you know, some of the drop in labor force participation right now that folks are looking at to say, oh, well, at some point that'll come back and the labor markets will normalize. You know, he's correctly pointed out that it's actually mostly retirements. It's mostly 55 plus dropping out of the labor force here. And so what if what we're seeing here is not a short term hiccup in, in labor market imbalance that will fix itself and reduce demand and therefore reduce inflation? What if what we're seeing is the beginning of a long term secular retirement wave that we know at some point is coming? And if that's the case, you've gotten in this huge portion of the workforce that we're retiring, 
converting investment portfolios into uh, spending money. Meanwhile, all of the salaries they used to earn are now going to get redeployed to an underemployed group of people, which are generally the younger folks who are also spenders. And so I, it's really hard for me to wrap my head around if this scenario takes place, right? And this is more of a thought experiment because it, it's a scenario I think not many people are considering, then the Fed won't be able to get demand. They won't be able to rein in demand and they'll have to let inflation run longer. We'll have longer, higher for longer inflation and higher for longer rates. And meanwhile, you know, it's a massive, you know, you have a headwind on the markets that are kind of counteracting this sort of 40 years of bull market. Maybe current income and, you know, yield, you know, is king, right? And that's that's sort of the way that we think about our portfolio Look, if this is a V-shaped environment, fine. Credit spreads compress and our portfolio does fine. It, it's not going to be the highest performing thing. It's not going to be the lowest performing thing. It's going to be consistent as expected. But if we end up in this world where, you know, the, you know, we we do have a headwind on risk markets combined with, you know, continued high demand and that's a paradigm shift, then we're going to be, I'm thinking 1960s, right? I'm thinking back in a world where income is king. You just want to be able to earn income because you just can't can't have a high degree of confidence you're going to make money on, on capital gains or on market markets anymore. So much stuff in that. So again, you're not making a big active decisions in your portfolio necessarily, but it kind of sounds like in general that a fixed income investor should, I mean, based off that counsel, keep durations a little bit shorter, a little bit less interest rate sensitivity, but obviously maintain credit exposures, higher quality credit exposures, particularly those that are following good practices in sustainable credit, right? <laughs> yes, that, that's exactly yep. right. And yep. you know, the performance progress situation I described earlier that points toward the higher yield credits, it requires security selection, right? I mean, you can't just buy the whole market or you're going to be buying good, bad, and ugly. And so you know, the shorter duration to mitigate those volatility in an income-oriented environment combined with, and you need the short duration to mitigate default risk in the high-yield markets, right? Because you have a lot more visibility into a company over a two to three-year time frame than you do over a much longer time frame. And so, yes, what you said is exactly right. I think, you know, focusing on income, getting the excess return that comes with some amount of credit risk and in, in higher quality credits, but finding it through the name selection and looking for mis- understood, mispriced, and misrated companies to us is is really the the core, especially on the sustainable side. I mean, kind of like a lot of these comments are basically similar to the quarterly letter that just came out from Howard Marks saying we have a sea change and that basically the tailwinds of lower interest rates is gone. And now we're moving back into an environment where active management and security selection and risk management, all things you just talked about are going to be more important than they have been not just for the last 40 years, but in particular the last uh, 10 plus years since the great financial crisis. I absolutely agree with him. Howard Marks has also in the past been known to say, you know, focus on the downside and the rest takes care of itself, right? And I definitely believe that as well. I, my only caveat to that is on one side, people have been calling, you know, calling the death of fundamental investing in security selection. And on the other side, people have been saying at some point it's going to matter for a while now. So, you know, we'll see. But at the end of the day, you know, we believe that you know, the one thing we can hang our hat on is the fundamentals. I don't know what's going to happen in the markets and bond prices and all this other stuff, but I do have, I can, I can get a high degree of confidence that this company will repay its debt. Uh, and if I do that over short timeframes, then yeah, but I do very much agree with with the comments Howard Marks made that that I think 
we're especially going into environments where security selection is going to matter a great deal. And, you know, we're looking forward to that. Robin, all yours. All right. Well, let's turn to some of the questions that we like to ask all of our guests on the show. And the first is professionally. So you are surrounded by just incredible resources, people, tools, ideas, everything really that you could want and need. So based on that knowledge, what would you say is currently your favorite investment? That's a good question. I think I'd have to say Michael's stores, Bonds and Michael's Mm. stores. It's not something most people would expect because in this environment, someone's going to think I'm crazy for choosing a name that is really a retail company. But I think the the thing to think about with Michael's stores is that they do a great job on sustainability. That goes without saying, or we wouldn't be looking at them at all. But it's an interesting business that is managed through a number of recessions. It's a business where the management team knows their business so incredibly well. In this environment, folks say, you know, a lot of folks, a lot of analysts will, will think generally about retail and say, okay, well, inflation's up, so they're going to raise prices because that's what inflation is. And then they're going to offset their higher input costs and things you know, that should be okay. And if customers stop buying because prices go up, that's what puts them into trouble. But if you really dive into the details of a business like that, they, the management team needs to know where they can take price, where they can't take price exactly what categories of their business are being affected, how they manage their freight, how they manage through the supply chain challenge. And particularly with a business like Michael's, they tend to be counter-cyclical or acyclical because their customer base is a lot more, less elastic, is a lot more inelastic than your typical retail business. And then because of the nature of what they offer, it's actually, they've been very, it's been very hard to dislocate them, you know, with e-commerce. And in the process, we also just saw a, a scenario in which they had to effectively close their stores for two to three months, right? And they managed through that extremely well because they managed their balance sheet extremely well. And though, you know, they carry a little bit more leverage, the management team knows their business extremely well. And so for those various reasons, right, I always look for things that are misunderstood or where people throw babies out with the bathwater. And, and I would say Michael Stores is one of them. Fine idea. All right, Vink. So the next question is, in our profession, and not just our profession, but also in our personal lives, we all have an obligation to perform at a high level. So how do you maintain your health, both physical and mental, to ensure you're performing at a high level? Oh, goodness gracious. Okay, the first thing that comes to mind with this is is going to reveal my total kind of geek tendencies. I was a computer science guy back in the day. This is going to be fun. I can already tell. When I don't want to deal with people, <laughs> I put on a VR headset and I do workouts in VR. Let's start with that. And they're fantastic. Oh, that's cool. It's the first time we had that. Changed my life. <laughs> mm-hmm. If I do want to deal with people, I go play squash. So that there's there's a little bit something that more folks can have a touch point with. From a mental health standpoint, I code. That's another my geek side. Or I work in my wife's fabric store. She owns a fabric store here in San Francisco. It's called Fabrics. And what's really great about it is everybody comes in trying to work on it. So I mentioned Michael Swartz. There's, there's a reason I know that business really well, right? Yeah, yeah. People come in with their projects and everybody's in a good mood. And it's so much fun to work with people that are in good moods. And then the whole store has a big upcycled fabric lens to it. All everything it sells is, is the fabric that would have otherwise, you know, secondhand fabric would have otherwise gone into landfills. And so it's got its own focus on sustainability, but it's just so much fun to walk in. And I mean, I know next to nothing about fabric. And so I have to always tell people that I'm just the husband of the owner because otherwise they'll think the employees don't know anything. But it's really fun to work with people and help them put together their projects and help them find you know exactly what they're looking for. It's a great mental reset and a reminder that you know those of us sitting in front of you know four computer screens with you know prices and numbers and markets going all day long that there's real people in the world too who get impacted both by the companies that we invest in but also 
by, you know, our fund is in some of their portfolios, right? Some of their retirement accounts. And there's something nice about having a touch point like that. Those are cool answers. I got to ask a question about the VR workout though. I mean, it's like, I can only imagine all the possibilities. I mean, it could be like fighting people or running exotic totally. locations or. And there's an app on the VR headset that I use that they will like put you on the surface of Mars or the surface of the moon because they have 3D video from some probe that once went up. And then they'll have, um, you know, it, basically then you're slashing and beating, breaking things and, you know, hitting things with your knees. And by the end of it, I mean, I, I wear my fitness watch. I mean, the number of calories I burn is, is you know, is huge, right? It's as much as spending an hour on an elliptical or on a treadmill, but it's way more fun. And I get to listen to really good music. So the future of fitness. I love it. So our next question is, is that, you know, we've all gotten to our positions because we've been surrounded by people who have really, you know, have given us opportunities to shine. And sort of in the spirit of, you know, kind of gratitude and kind of a learning orientation, who are some of those people you are thankful for? And what are some of those key lessons you learned from them? So you mean besides Ted Lasso? Yeah. Because he's been a real <laughs> big impact on me over the last three years. I'm not kidding. At all. I think he's impacted a lot of people. So I'm a lifelong learner. So I will have to say sort of a cop-out answer. There are just too many people to name. But I think that the point that I'd like to make at every stop in my career, so I'm not a mercenary, right? I've always worked in an area where I felt like if I knew that the people that were that I worked for or around were there to look out for me, then I could just focus on my job and look out for them. And it was a really great kind of comfortable way to make a living, right? I could roll up my sleeves and work hard. And that's a great way to make a living. Everywhere I've gone, right, There's, all, I've, I've had that opportunity and people have inspired me and they've taught me. Um, but it's not just, I think the thing that I think about with it, it's not just the managers and the mentors and the, the people that I've worked for, but it's like my coworkers and folks that have been in the roles, you know, that have supported us and, you know, the support teams. And yeah, I mean, look, I feel silly because I, I feel like it's like a message that I would tell my kids and they would roll their eyes, but you, you never know where and from whom you're going to learn something. So you kind of always have to keep your ears and eyes open and just practice a growth mindset. If anything, it's that it's having that growth mindset that, that's really informed who I am. And there's a lot of people that have fed into that, but that would be my answer on that. Well said. I like it. Yeah, that's great stuff. All right. Well, one more before we let you go. And that is, do you have any recommendations for our listeners on content that you're consuming? Books, podcasts, newsletters, anything? I absolutely yeah. do. Mostly books for better or worse, okay. right? Because for whatever reason, I you know I don't get a lot of time to read, but when I try to read something, I try to read something that's impactful to me. Okay, so books. So obviously as a fundamental investor, I, I'm gonna say something I'm sure other people have said, which is Benjamin Graham's Intelligent Investor. That's not an original idea. I would also add in there Annie Duke's Thinking in Bets. If you haven't read it, it's fantastic. Uh, she is or was a professional poker player. And you know it's really about making decisions with imperfect information, which I think is really, you know, as, as she puts it, um, uh, and I'm going to, uh, I think this is a quote, but if it's not, it's a paraphrase, life is poker, not chess. And then sort of, you know, kind of going into my sustainability lens and sort of just stuff that's deeply personal to me, I would say, if you haven't read it, Mindset by Carol Dweck is just an absolutely tremendous book. It really is the sort of the the, the origin or big seminal component of the, of the term growth mindset and how it's become part of or the lexicon and pedagogy and education and all that stuff that I just, I just mentioned it. And lastly would be Blindspot. I think the authors are Greenwald and Banaji. And Blindspot is really just something that I think we all need to be aware of, right? Our blind spots, both from a DEI standpoint, but also 
just generally from how we interact with people in the outside world. My gosh, I don't know that title. How do I not know Blind Spot? That's a great recommendation. I've read the other ones. I actually have not read Annie Duck's new book as well. She's got another one out. It's something about no one to quit or something. Oh, yeah. So I haven't read it either yet. So I, I'm going to have to put that on my Christmas list. Good stuff. All right. Well, this has been a great conversation. Thanks so much for coming on the show. And uh, tell us how can listeners stay in touch and learn more about what you're doing at Osterweiss. Sure. So the best way is Osterweiss's website, osterweiss.com, O-S-T-E-R-W-E-I-S. And there's a whole insight section. I'm all of the portfolio managers there, including myself, are pretty prolific. And you'll get to see a lot of both writings and audio and video and recordings of the ways we think. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank this has been great. There's been so many good nuggets in this interview. We really appreciate your time today. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Rusty, take us out with your final words. Invest well and be well. We'll be back soon. Thanks for listening to The Weighing Machine. And hey, if you liked this episode, please remember to subscribe. And thank you for your time and trust in Orion Advisor Solutions. Thanks again for listening. Robin and I truly appreciate you giving us some of your valuable time. We hope to provide you in each episode something you can use in conversations or making decisions or both. If you like this podcast, you might also like some of our sister podcasts at Orion Advisor Solutions. First, we have the Wang the Risk podcast, which I host monthly. On behalf of Orion Risk Intelligence, this is where we consider various market scenarios regarding top-of-mind concerns among financial advisors and investors. Next, we have one of the top-rated and most popular podcasts in the financial industry, especially when it comes to behavioral finance, Dr. Daniel Crosby's Weekly Standard Deviations Podcast. And when it comes to all things fintech, we also have the bi-weekly The Fuse Show with Ryan Donovan and George Figuera, two of the funniest guys in the industry. You will learn something and laugh in every episode. Last, when it comes to more content, including commentary, videos, and other resources, please check out the website, orionportfoliosolutions.com, go to the research drop-down menu, and go to the Financial Advisor Success Hub. Thanks again, invest well and be well, and we'll talk to you next week. The Weighing Machine is hosted by Rusty Vanneman, Chief Investment Strategist at Orion Advisor Solutions, and me, Robin Murray, freelance writer and editor. If you have feedback or questions about our podcast today, please send us a note at rusty at orion.com. All opinions expressed by Rusty Vanneman and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and don't reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion, its affiliate subsidiaries, and its employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information that participants consider reliable.